For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone. Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. We'll get into this very special end-of-year episode of the Spike podcast in just one moment. But before we do that, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to our Christmas appeal so far. It really means a lot. You know, Spiked is completely free. All of our articles and our videos and our podcasts are, are free to access. And yet still you hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that we can maintain our independence, our freedom and our fearlessness as we go into the next year. So thank you to everyone who has donated. And if you haven't donated yet, but you'd like to, please do go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate to do so. We also have a special offer on at the moment. So if you donate £30 or more over the festive period, you'll get a whole year's access to Spike supporters, which is our donor community where you can access exclusive events, our comment section, discounts on our books and merchandise, and much more. Once again, that's spiked-online.com slash donate. Thank you very much. A very Merry Christmas. And now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to this extra special end of year edition of the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. And with me in the studio as ever, we have Spiked's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. Also with us right here, we have The Spectator's Freddie Gray. Hello. And down the line, we're delighted to be joined by Spike columnist Raki Bassan. Hello. And Spike columnist and stand-up comedian Simon Evans. Morning. So coming up on today's show, we'll be looking back at the biggest events of the year, essentially the war, the culture war, and the revolt against the laptop class. So, Tom, I think it's fair to say the biggest event of the year in February was the war in Ukraine, certainly turned the entire world upside down, challenged everyone's assumptions about, you know, the future. Mm -hmm. And perhaps one of the most amazing things to draw out of this was the Ukrainian resistance. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say a bit about that? Well, it is worth kind of casting your mind back because, as you say, the world has changed so utterly. You kind of forget what what it was like in those early days. But there was a lot of speculation that Ukraine would fall almost overnight. I mean, even, you know, General Milley in the US was suggesting it, Ukraine could essentially fall to Russia in about 72 hours. And yet it was another prediction which turned out to be wrong. And I think the thing that's been so telling in recent months is just the fact that all of the sort of lies about Ukraine, that it wasn't a proper nation, that it wouldn't be able to defend itself, that it wouldn't want to defend itself, were just completely, completely laying out for the lies that they were. And it's been really quite striking how this particular conflict, I guess, has shaken not just the kind of geopolitical order, but I guess the West in particular. We had been given to these sorts of fantasies that it was the end of history, that conflict, at least for Europe and the West, was kind of a thing of the past. It was something that happened over there. It was something that was kind of arm's length. Um, that you didn't have to worry about kind of that bigger political instability. You didn't have to worry about keeping the lights on. Like the only fights left to had were over, you know, who could go in whose toilet and so on. Mm. Um, all of that has changed now, fundamentally. Um, and the positive, if there is a positive to extract from this, is again, the kind of stunning bravery of, of people on the ground in Ukraine who have shocked the world and Russia in their ability to resist this imperialistic invasion. Yeah, and you're right. It's, it's certainly the bravery of the Ukrainians has, has exposed the kind of uselessness of our own um, elites, um, not just the geopolitical complacency, but the energy complacency. They even seem to think that inflation would never come back and things like that. That seems to 
you know, have really um, left them looking terrible. They're not the adults in the room that mm. they um, made out to be. Uh, Freddie, I just want to come to you for a sec to talk about how people have responded politically to the war in Ukraine. Because it's fair to say that probably 90% of people or the vast majority of people are, you know, very much in favour of supporting Ukraine. But there are some, you know, on the left, it's as if the anti-war types um, are only are not particularly concerned about a war if it's waged by Russia. On the right, there are these kind of sovereignist types who are not that bothered by this violent incursion of mm. Vladimir Putin into Ukrainian sovereignty. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what do you think? What do you make of that? What's that all about? Well, I suppose I come from the sort of the anti-war right, mm. uh, and we we kind of conditioned ourselves since Iraq to think that the war hawks in Washington are wrong about the DC foreign policy establishment, if you like, are wrong about everything. And they usually are. And they usually are. But the, for once, they sort of got it right. <laughs> I mean, they said the invasion was going to happen. Uh, I kept thinking, you know, it can't actually happen. You know, Putin's not that stupid. Uh, and then it turns out he was. And not only was he stupid, he was, his military was, he vastly underestimated uh, the competence of his own military mm. and, of course, the strength of Ukrainian nationalism. So I think, I mean, I think really uh, there is some sort of perverse uh, kind of alt-right talk on on the in America, and particularly about about you know kind of that the Ukrainians are just sort of larping at, at nationalism. There is a real war going on. Yeah. They are actually dying. They are putting up a heroic. Uh, in fact, I was so um, surprised by it that I booked a, a flight to uh, to Poland actually, and then went in to go and see what was going on because I just I couldn't really understand it. I only got to Lviv. It wasn't at all heroic. I was miles away from <laughs> I was miles away from any conflict. I didn't hear a single shot. I just wanted to hear one shot so I could say I was in a war zone, but yeah. I wasn't. Uh, but I did. You know, it was sort of all the all the boring things that every journalist in the world has said. It was pretty inspiring to see uh, a country mobilise itself, and that you know, Putin's trying to impose a sort of nineteenth century uh, vision of the world mm. on a on a twentieth twenty first century country. And Simon, um, I think it's fair to say that even a real war couldn't quash the culture war. And there were kind of elements of the culture war that bled into <laughs> bled into this. You know, I don't know if people might remember um, quite in the early days of the war, all these um, prodigy pianists being cancelled or um, film festivals <laughs> being, being banned or um, even Tchaikovsky was... Um, mm. No longer performed at, at blood one on his stage. Hands, yeah, yeah, apparently it was all his fault. I mean, what have you made? What sorry, what have you made of that sort of irrepressible, um, that sort of irrepressibleness of the culture war? That even something like this couldn't put a break on it. Well, I suppose, um, I suppose I might say, is it was it the culture war or was it simply alignment with uh, good causes and the the familiar temptations for virtue signalling? I don't know whether I'd call it culture war exactly, but certainly people who worked within what you might call the cultural sector wanted to demonstrate their support for the right side. And one of the aspects, I suppose, of the culture war in the last few years is an extraordinary amount of predictable alignments so that you can guess if somebody is anti-vax, where they stand on uh, American politics generally, or whether they believe that uh, America was trying to provoke uh, Russia into attacking Ukraine. Those kind of things seem to fall into an alignment, which wouldn't be easy to express in obvious coherent logical forms. So yes, there were some strange outbreaks, but I suppose if I'm to be generous, I, I think it is understandable that people want to demonstrate that they have uh, you know, no time at all for uh, wars of aggression um, on the borders of Europe, but a little bit further away, and we might feel slightly more ambivalent about them or be be able to look the other way. 
and, and do people do feel weirdly helpless um, living in Brighton? I know a lot of families who sort of rushed immediately to try and secure themselves a Ukrainian refugee or something that they could demonstrate their commitment to the cause with. And um, quite a lot of those uh, families have, have found that things are more complicated than that. So I, I have a tiny bit of sympathy with people who, who just wanted to demonstrate whatever they could to, to the Ukrainian people. And who knows, it is possible, I suppose, to play devil's advocate for a moment, it is possible that part of the borderline miraculous uh, steadfastness shown by the Ukrainian people from the top down was to some extent bolstered by the uh, obvious unambiguous commitment made within this country and across Europe to their cause. That makes sense to me. Um, let's move on to fully focus on on the culture war. Um, over this year, I think it's fair to say that what has been come known as Turf Island, um, Britain, the home of gender critical feminists, have <laughs> secured some quite um, surprising and, and stunning victories. We've had the closure of the the Tavistock Clinic or the announcement that it will be closed. We've had the interim cast review. Um, you know, laying into the kind of um, affirmative model of gender-affirming care. We've had um, various court cases where feminists have been found, you know, on the right side. They've been discriminated against for their gender-critical views. Rakeem, do you think we're kind of turning the tide on this particular issue um, that maybe some reason is kind of coming back into the discussion? Well, there have been some controversial movements on the um, gender self-identification front north of the border. So I wouldn't quite say that the tide has completely turned. But there is there is a cultural pushback, which I am pleased to see. I thought it was really interesting that we saw a, a rather large list of MPs uh, condemning Jeremy Clarkson's piece in The Sun uh, on Meghan Markle, saying that this could potentially uh, contribute towards violence and intimidation towards women and girls. And looking at the list of MPs, there's parliamentarians there who are also perfectly comfortable with undermining the integrity of female-only sensitive spaces um, through their positions on gender self-identification. So I do think that the tide is somewhat um, turned, as you said, Fraser, talked about the closure of the Tavistock Clinic, um, but I wouldn't say that the job is completely done, and that's largely because we still have an uncomfortable number of MPs who are more than happy to sacrifice women's rights on the altar of radical transgenderism. Simon, do you think that this um, the trans movement has become a bit more exposed this year? I remember, you know, you wrote a really funny piece about um, one of the trans activists screaming at a baby, or at least <laughs> at least screaming yeah. at the, yeah. a, a father holding That's holding hilarious. a child. Yeah, it, it is interesting, isn't it? How it's, it's it's like the great sleeping giant of the British public have finally started to wake up to what's going on. I, I think you're certainly earlier this year. I remember talking to various mums, for instance, from the school, you know, who were completely oblivious to uh, what was going on in everything from women's swimming to uh, women's refugees. In this case, you know, uh, that they had uh, they had that default attitude, which the British have, I think, and to their credit, and in particular, which women have, which is a sense of fairness of wanting people who are struggling in one way or another to have the best opportunities they can to work their lives out, to live their life as they see fit. And they had not registered just quite how extreme and how extraordinary and how challenging, I think, not just to women's rights, but to our fundamental grasp of reality, you know, to our mm. ability to, to remain sane. I, I don't entirely 
endorse the idea that we frame this argument in terms of women's rights. I think we we should put it on even more fundamental, solid ground than than that, and say this is you know part of the Western philosophical tradition is that you know it's built on logos, the idea that we use words to describe the universe, that we can all agree on what that means, and that you know that's how we build reality for ourselves, and uh, without compare. The trans issue has been the greatest challenge to that I've ever seen in my lifetime. There's, there's been nothing ever like it. All, all the previous sort of aspects of the culture war were genuinely up for debate, you know, whether or not, I don't know, you should have a black actor playing Macbeth or whether or not, uh, you know, boys should be allowed to choose different styles of clothing. It's, it's all those, I don't know, there's, there's, there's like loads of things that are totally up for debate and just show how society is transforming and evolving at all points. But the trans thing is just, uh, I think, when a huge number of people have, have finally clocked just how insane it is. And I don't know whether that means the tide is turning, but I do certainly think that far more people now are engaged with the argument, and that can only be a good thing because that is, you know, that basically uh, um, shortens the odds that reality, truth, and, and reason will win out. Well, I would just add that I think, uh, well, you're absolutely right that the, the, the reality has had some good wins. Mm. Uh, I think the extremists are getting more extreme, and yeah. that's the danger. Uh, and I don't think trans-terrorism is, be, is beyond uh, our imaginations or reality. Even I mean, Spectator had a, uh, a very large bloke called Phoebe uh, who um, put an – he did a video. He went down to this. He put a video to his – he put a knife to his eye yeah. and said, I'm going to do to the Spectator what uh, they did to Charlie Hebdo. And the first thing we knew about it was we'd been sent down. But we wanted to campaign to say, because we're so free speech, yeah. Phoebe should be allowed to do that video. Yeah. That's what uh, Nicholas Sturgeon's latest fan, by the sounds. We probably should talk about Scotland briefly. <laughs> Let's talk about it briefly because it's kind of breaking in a, news in as a this nutshell, podcast yeah. has been recorded. I mean, it will probably change by the time people get to hear this in about a day's time or so. But you have had the gender recognition reforms pass in Holyrood. Since then, obviously, Westminster suggesting that they might block it because it essentially puts... Scotland on a collision course with the rest of the UK on questions of uh, gender recognition and the equality law and so on. But it is really striking how Nicholas Sturgeon has been pursuing this agenda, mm. even though the ex very clear will of the Scottish public is against all of the key reforms, whether yeah. that's making it, you only have to live in your new acquired gender for three months rather than two years. 16 and 17-year-olds can transition. They even blocked an amendment last night that would stop sex offenders deciding to kind of essentially transition in the process of a trial and therefore potentially act, not only be referred to as the opposite sex by potentially the complainant in a trial, but also to access women's prisons. All of this in the very clear opposition to the Scottish public. So like all those debates we had about what would an independent Scotland really look like? You know, yeah. you want to kind of be half in the UK, half in the EU. What's really going to be that different apart from, you know, you want to be under the thumb of Brussels rather than in the UK. Apparently it's allowing sex offenders to be women is the... Um, is the clear answer. That's, that's the, it's the great civil rights movement of, of our time, as, mm. as, as you well know. Um, right, we've got to move on um, to race through this year. Of course, one of the biggest moments was the passing of the Queen. And that seems to have been almost usurped by the rise of the ghastly Meghan and Harry. It's almost as if they represent two different types of attitudes, two different ways of um, approaching the world. And, you know, there's some relevance to this truth discussion mm. as as well that we've been having. I mean, Freddie, what have you made of the, you know, let's start with the Meghan and Harry in first. Because you, you were having a go at Me Meghan and Harry before it was cool as well. I, I was doing yeah. well, way yeah. before it was cool. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was <laughs> early on, you were concerned. Way before about MPs this. would write letters I, yeah. calling <laughs> you to. <laughs> uh, no, I think, I mean, there's this sort of argument that you hear quite a lot 
that um, Harry and Meghan, while the Brits may get their back up and and you know and, and we don't like our country being criticised and the tabloids are all against her, that actually what they're doing is very clever and they're appealing to everyone in America because America is insanely mm. woke, et cetera, et cetera. It's, but it's, that's just rubbish. Yeah. It's just not true. Uh, I mean, most Americans don't think about the monarchy at all. In as much as they do, they find it funny and ridiculous. If Harry and Meghan can add to the hilarity, then all the better. Yeah. And I think that's the whole thing about the Harry and Meghan show. I guess 90% of the audience are watching it hoping to laugh. Mm. And they do laugh a bit and then they get very bored. Yeah. That's certainly what I did. And I think most Americans yeah. I've spoken to about it feel the same way. It's not funny for six hours, is it? It's not funny for six hours. <laughs> but but, but the, I mean, this idea that they're sort of betting on the right side of history, I think is is dumb and counter to reality. Yeah. Tom, do you want to say something a bit about like the, the you know, the Sussex is positioning themselves as the right side of history, mm. particularly in contrast to the late Queen? Yes, I mean, I suppose what you see is because they've tried to kind of play this game is to say, you know, we're against the institution, we're not against the Queen. But they are against everything that the Queen essentially stood for. Yeah. And especially in the midst of the it, it, in the midst of the public mourning and so on, you did see people uh, kind of rediscover a lot of that language around service and stoicism and so on, all these things which are now really out of fashion. You know, it's not really about public service, it's about self-care, it's not really about, you know, nationhood, it's about victimhood and so on. Like, they do represent that clear shift and I think whilst at the same time I think there is a there is a point at which even their kind of former cheerleaders are starting to recognise that they backed a couple of chances in some cases people yeah. are kind of slowly backing away from the crime scene a little bit now I think the problem is that they, they do in their very naff hallmark card way represent the kind of elite zeitgeist if you like mm. so and that kind of shift from an older establishment which um, for all its flaws at least wasn't as emotionally incontinent and identitarian as the new one. Harry and Meghan are definitely that kind of new generation coming through, it feels like. I, I just I read a piece recently that came through online about a, a philosopher I'm very interested in called René Girard, who um, is, is dead now, but he wrote in a book called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, um, and it was talking about uh, the rise of victim culture. He said that um, there is one overriding value which dominates the total planetary culture in which we live, far more so than technological progress or economic growth. It is a concern for victims and the consequent rise of victim power. And I think you have to understand that and integ integrate that into your concept of what's going on in the world to understand how Harry and Meghan are playing the game because that's something that would have been completely alien to every single previous generation of the royal family, the <laughs> idea that they would play victims mm. to the world with their absurd, almost like surreal level of wealth, privilege and power and, and luxury. But they've somehow turned that and, and that is the key to understanding what they've grasped and what so far the royal family has yet to do so. I think. So I want to move on to talk about free speech, but there is a kind of a Megan theme to start this off. Um, just recently, <laughs> Jeremy Clarkson has been, um, I think it's fair to say, paraded naked through the metaphorical streets and had <laughs> excrement thrown at him. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, he is a farmer now. He's probably covered in shit half the He's time anyway, isn't it? <laughs> but I wonder, because Rakim, you touched on the Clarkson stuff there. What have yeah. you made of this particular circus? Well, I mean, I think Jeremy Clarkson is hopeless at the best of times, um, <laughs> and he has he has form on this front. It's, it was it was a terrible piece, but I just think the re the, the political reaction uh, to the piece uh, published in the Sun it, it, it's been so melodramatic. Uh, it's incredible. You have MPs who are supposedly concerned over women's safety. Um, they're of the view that this piece uh, written by Clarkson might incite uh, violence and intimidation towards women and girls. 
Very interestingly, these very politicians don't have a single word to say about the grooming gangs crisis which has taken hold in Britain. Um, I'll call it gla glamour fo feminism. Uh, they're obsessed with Meghan Markle, but when it comes to those bread and butter issues of domestic violence and issues such as group-based child sexual abuse, which primarily affects vulnerable uh, working-class girls, they're nowhere to be seen. Definitely. And so obviously the Clarkson thing has been the most recent kind of mm. free speech flashpoint in our memories. But, you know, this has been a year of extraordinary big tech censorship um, and I suppose of some loosening of um, big mm. tech censorship with the with the rise of Elon Musk and his takeover of Twitter. It's definitely a game of two halves. <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> because, because you almost forget because of all the excitement around Elon Musk. Yeah, so Tom, do you want to take us through some of the things that happened earlier on in the year? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good that's point. that's really, you know... Because everyone does kind of forget what was happening in February with the truckers and so on, yeah. which felt like the beginning of, or at least the hardening of big tech censorship, the reaching of it into more areas of life. Like they could de-platform you but now they could defund you. So you had GoFundMe, the fundraising platform, yeah. deprive the Freedom Convoy, Convoy, as it was called, against vaccine mandates and so on in Ottawa and elsewhere, of being able to have being able to access the, the money that they themselves had fundraised. Mm. Kind of, again, working almost in concert with the Canadian government, which was freezing bank accounts and you know extending their terrorist financing laws to affect these truckers who had just turned up blocked some roads and said, we don't want to go along with these policies. So you had that kind of really frightening extension. We saw, of course, reaching to the UK with the PayPal yeah. um, scandals where you saw groups like the Free Speech Union um, and us for them, and particularly kind of uh, lockdown sceptical organisations, essentially being deprived of their accounts and, uh, you know, by connection, essentially blocking off a significant way in which people would donate to them. I think it was a third of the Free Speech Union's funds were drawn from PayPal accounts um, on what was quite clearly political grounds. They'd referenced yeah. loosely hate speech policies and so on. So the ability of big tech to kind of unperson someone or an organisation was demonstrated with sort of terrifying detail, if you like. But I suppose since then, the story has been all about Elon Musk. Um, and I'm sure we'll get more into that. But I think the one thing that's been striking about the response to that, the kind of shock and horror that he has been liberalizing things on Twitter to some degree, is that you clearly see that the cultural elite, the liberal left, whatever you want to call them, for all of their naysaying in recent years, they do recognize how powerful a weapon this was yeah. and how they were kind of in control of it. Mm. And I think that a lot of the hysteria around Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter has sort of demonstrated that in many respects. And Freddie, one of the um, most interesting things that Elon Musk has done since his takeover is the so-called Twitter files, releasing yes. these internal documents showing the extent of big tech censorship, so showing the extent of collaboration with the security services and the Democratic Party and things like that. Yeah. Do you want to say a bit about that? I mean, well, I thought, I thought that was, it's, it's been extremely funny just to watch it uh, and a bit <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. But I thought the most terrifying, so the first lot of Twitter files were done by a journalist called Matt Taibbi, who's a very good journalist. And uh, they were not disappointing. They were sort of interesting yeah. to a certain extent, but they were a bit of a dance good. You know, they they kind of you sort of you sort of thought, oh well, we knew this happened. Yeah, and and you, you thought, okay, well, we're not getting much here. And then a few days later, there was this supplemental Twitter files where we found out that the files had been vetted by the former a former general counsel at the FBI, who's now the deputy general, senior de deputy counsel at Twitter. Uh, and they'd been, you know, a lot of files had actually been scrubbed. So you realize, you just see quite how hand in glove mm. uh, American intelligence, deep state, if you want to use that word, uh, were with 
big tech. And the terrifying thing about the response to Musk for me is we like to think that the sort of you know the elite and everybody, if they realize what was going on, they'd be outraged. Yeah. But what you actually see is everybody's outrage at Musk for yeah. revealing mm. it. Uh, because <laughs> because it ruined Twitter for a lot of dickheads, you know. And 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 it's it's like deeply depressing. <laughs> yeah, it's either oh you know, oh this is a nothing burger, we knew that anyway. Yeah, or, that's that's the best best thing. Why yeah. is he doing this? <laughs> He's gonna spread hate. Simon, what do you what do you make about Musk as a kind of countercultural figure. I mean, he's sort of popped up in actually all of the topics that we've spoken about already. I mean, he's part of the free speech <laughs> discussion. He was giving sort of Starlink, um, you know, you, uh, internet to Ukraine. He yeah, um, turned on that issue, it's fair to say. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's but, been red-pilled on many fronts. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, true. But he's also, um, he's a part of the culture wars as well. I mean, what do you make of him as a figure? Yeah, he's a very interesting figure. He, he is, he's a bit of a shapeshifter, isn't he? Uh, some of his previous eruptions into public consciousness have been a good deal less um, heroic <laughs> than, than, the, than his present mode, like calling the cave divers in Thailand paedophiles because they <laughs> use his submarine or something. I mean, he's an extraordinary character. That People have put up quite detailed accounts of how he has, to some extent, not exactly risen without trace, but perhaps not been quite as responsible for quite as many of the sort of technological innovations or indeed the sort of great business gambles that you might assume, given that he's become the, the world's wealthiest man. He's one of those people who's sort of um, swum with the tide a little bit more than, than you might think. I've been quite impressed with his openness to um, the, the possibility that no possible reform is off is off the books, you know, that there is there is nothing he won't consider and play with. You do sometimes feel as if he's reinventing the wheel to an unnecessary extent with Twitter. But I think a lot of people did feel that, you know, the the the, the kind of demons that were flushed out of, of the main building and seen wandering away with their cardboard boxes in their hands <laughs> was quite an extraordinary exposure. That I mean, that was a, a, a couple of days for the for the ages. And um and some of the sort of interviews carried out by the Huffington Post and what have you afterwards with people who were in charge of, you know, human rights within the building and so on. Uh, were you know exposed to I don't I mean I agree with you to some extent Fred, that there was a there was a little bit of a damp squib anticlimax when the Twitter files came out but I think a lot a lot of all that was to do with the fact that we'd already seen the kind of people who were working there already and we had we'd already had our worst suspicions confirmed by that point <laughs> I still have faith that he might this time next year I think we might have a better stronger more more coherent responsible Twitter than we have previously and I think the main takeaway I've had so far from his ownership of it is that a huge number of the yes the left wing the journalists the commentariat who who had assumed had become quite complacent in their assumption that they were basically running the show and it was it was aligned with their beliefs and and their sentiments and so on were absolutely horrified with what they thought might emerge under under Musk's um, rule, and I just don't think we've seen that. I don't know, you know, what experience other people have had. Possibly they have been trolled more than you would think. But honestly, my my uh, experience of Twitter has hardly changed at all. A lot of the old accounts that I followed, who were cancelled one after another since you know uh, the, the early 2010s, some of them I was really looking forward to coming back, but they haven't. Sadly, <laughs> some of the more provocative and uh, you know. Uh, risky ones. Um, I just don't think it's, I, I, I don't think you can ever quite reclaim the pre-Trump, you know, what people were hoping for was was that kind of the, the Kekistan, you know, the frog era <laughs> yeah. previous to, uh, to uh, Donald Trump's election when people were you know, peppering Twitter with with you know really quite outrageous uh, provocations. We haven't seen a return to that, 
And actually, I, I think on the whole, uh, the fact that it is a bit of a damp squib in that regard is probably a good thing. You know, it means there's not going to be an eruption. And I don't want to see all the left-leaning journalists having to migrate to Mastodon or whatever it's called. I think it would be a shame if we lost the town square element of this. That's the one thing we want to restore it to. Although I do think migrating to Mastodon is a bit like when everyone says they're going to move to Canada if you yeah. know, the Republican yeah. wins or something like Parliament. that. <laughs> it is interesting, though. Um, I know we've got plenty more to cover, but how as soon as Elon Musk takes over all of the arguments that were always made as to why big tech censorship was fine yeah. just completely evaporate. I mean, not least because there has been some questionable cases of him kicking off certain accounts for allegedly doxing him, which is a whole can of worms we don't really need to get into. But it was interesting that around that whole point, all of the arguments, it's a private company, they can do what they want. Yeah. You know, and it's just like being banned from your local bar. It doesn't affect how you can act, <laughs> you know, well, what are you complaining about? All of that has completely evaporated now, which is good in a sense because it has on hope, you would hope that it has confronted both sides with the reality that just having a billionaire or a handful of billionaires having just kind of executive autocratic control over a big sphere in which political debate takes place is probably not a good idea. Yeah. But as we all know, they'll revert back to type as soon as someone else buys it out. Can I also just very quickly add that my, I think we had the tweet, the best tweet of all time from Musk, which was my, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just love that. You just read it over and over again. <laughs> so we should move on to talk briefly about an even more terrifying form of censorship People, I think, have probably quite easily and understandably forgotten that this was the year that Salman Rushdie was brutally stabbed. Um, a crazed Islamist finally tried to act out on the fatwa that was passed um, after his uh, Satanic Verses was released. Rakib, um, I mean, what do you make of this uh, incident? Well, an absolute tragic incident, but also I thought what was tragic was the lack of political condemnation. Mm. Uh, you even had... Uh, some politicians in the British context suggest that not that not that he had it coming, but that we need to be careful in terms of how we talk about organised religion. That some of the material um, that's been written in the past by Sir Salman Rushdie is Islamophobic, um, all too often uh, used to clamp down on very important debates. Uh, I, I felt that the incident also. Um, I think I think what it demonstrated was that the, the diverse nature of Islamist terrorism. I, I, to, to my understanding, the perpetrator um, expressed sympathies with Islamic Republic um, of Iran and belonged to the Shia denomination. So I think it shed a very different light because the, 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 one of the dominant strands of Islamist extremism in the Western context is um, Salaf, uh, Salafist jihadism. Well, here you had the sheer extremist threat on show. So I think just from my counterterrorism background, I think that the important thing that that attack did highlight is the diverse nature within the broader Islamist uh, terror threat in the Western world. Tom, do you want to say something to Salman Rushdie? Mm. Um, I, I'm still struck just by the fact that how, how quickly it faded from memory, you know, as mm. soon as... Um, Almost as soon as you knew he was on life support rather than yeah. um, had been killed, it, it kind of fell off the front pages. Well, uh, of course, the, the story of the Rushdie affair is, of course, of Islamist extremist censorship mm. um, and this barbaric talk of murdering people because they wrote a book that upset you. But uh, it's always been also of the liberal cowardice. Yeah. And I think what was, and it's always worth remembering, obviously, back when the fatwa was first issued, 
that kind of cowardice you saw across the political class. People don't remember that even the Thatcher government were very sheepish about yeah. this particular issue, you know, choosing to condemn the book and the author, whilst also saying that obviously it's not okay that you're calling for people to assassinate him. But if you think about what's happened when they finally got to him, and there wasn't even that kind of brief post-Charlie Hebdo, just sweet Charlie type moment. Yeah. Everyone was just shocked. It was like, oh, that's a terrible thing that's happened. The, the broader significance of it seemed to be lost on people. Mm. And so we could talk about what happened from the, when the fatwa was first in, introduced to now. Um, and as I say, there was a lot of kind of uh, a cowardice in coming forward even then. But if you even think from 2015 and the attack on Charlie Hebdo and today and this year, Again, people just really struggling to find the minerals to say it's out of order to try to kill someone because they wrote a novel. Yeah. It really should rattle us, I think. Um, and the fact that most people don't even know really what state he's in still. We've only really had bits and bobs of information come out via his publicist and so on. The, the lack of sustained journalistic and political interest shames us, I think, in so many different respects. But um, I can't say I was that surprised by it, I guess. Simon, I want to talk to you a bit about one, um, another sort of provocative area of speech, if you can call it that, um, comedy, because it's been a dark year um, for comedians. Um, even the great and knowingly offensive uh, Jerry Sadowitz was cancelled. We had the famous slap of uh, Chris Rock by Will Smith uh, for his jokes. We had people assault Dave Chappelle on stage for his jokes about trans people. Um, I mean, is, co is comedy getting dangerous as well? I mean, you can certainly pick up a trend if, you, if you're inclined to. I suppose when you drill down into them, each one of those incidents probably had a, a mix of, you know, a multivariate cause or whatever. And I don't necessarily think that they all reflect a general, a general drift in the culture. Jerry Sadovitz, I think, to as, as much as anything else, was a victim of something I, I counted a little bit the year previously as well, which comes very specifically from the Edinburgh Festival's um, sort of uh, human resources struggles and challenges, <laughs> possibly caused by Brexit. You never know. <laughs> but the um, the fundamental problem the the Edinburgh Festival has is that it requires it, it relies heavily on young, rather brittle students to work front of house and as ushers and so on. And they're not representative of the sort of people who actually go to the shows in Edinburgh to enjoy themselves. And very often a, uh, a sort of uh, little wildfire can, can, can rush through them and they, they get into a panic over something they've heard and half understood and not really grasped the context of. <laughs> and they are not previously confronted Jerry Sadovitz. They don't know that he has a habit of waggling a prosthetic penis into the faces of the front row or that when he calls Rishi Sunak uh, a racial slur, then he's doing that in character as though he were a member of the Tory Grandy membership and that sort of thing. Uh, and they don't grasp it. And because the, the venues rely so heavily on um, on this kind of itinerant labour not to close down for the month that they're there, they, they can be held hostage, which is an absolute tragedy and a catastrophe, but it is still quite a narrow demographic. Unfortunately, one of the big facts that everyone has learned in the last few years is this 3.5% thing, you know, that you only need a tiny number of uh, borderline insane activists <laughs> and they can swing... Uh, huge amounts of change, you know, in, in their chosen field of, of activity. And, and that's what you saw there. So I think Sadovitz will live to ride another day, but uh, theatres should make sure that not only are warnings issued to the uh, punters, they should, they should be issued to the staff as well to understand <laughs> that if you're going to come and work on a Sadovitz show, you will encounter some good old-fashioned vulgarity. Um, I mean, all of these other things, these specific incidents, uh, the Chris Rock thing uh, was, was absolutely shocking, uh, really, really terrible. 
And I thought he handled it incredibly well. And also, to his credit, didn't then try and write an entire hour and a half show about the PTSD that he suffered ever <laughs> since as well, other comedians take note. But, um, I mean, you know, you compare that to getting hit by a bread roll at a charity lunch, I think you can sort of understand what, what it is possible to encounter on stage and maintain your dignity. But I think, again, Will Smith is not really, um, he's not a representative of some drifting culture. This is often the way when you see certain events, you think, oh, my God, it's an example of this, that, or the other. But actually, if you drill down into them a little bit, I do think you know comedy is possibly losing its um, its appetite for uh, offence, and and we have got to a position, as I say, where activists are capable of having a chilling effect, and we have to resist it. But nevertheless, I think it still potentially has the cojones to come through. So let's move on to talk about the kind of broader um, political trends. Um, I mean, it's been a whirlwind year in UK politics. We've had the um, the demise, or some people call it the ousting of Boris Johnson, um, kind of precipitated and almost cheered on by a kind of media class. We had the brief Liz Truss interim for 44 days, extraordinary period. And now we have Rishi Sunak, and it feels like this kind of um, almost technocratic kind of politics um, is creeping back against what I would say is are the wishes of the people. Tom, are we sort of back where we were in 2010 or something now? I mean, no, is the because the world has changed. I mm. think voters have changed. I think all this kind of idea about populism is dead, or the you know that that kind of brief experiment people had with wanting politicians to actually do what they say they want and, and to actually align somewhat with their wishes and interests is over. That everyone's just realised that was obviously a mistake. It's mm. obviously nonsense. But you can't help but feel that, particularly in if you put Sunak and Starmer across each other at the at the respective dispatch boxes, you do feel like we're back in that kind of competing flavors of blancmange, you know. Yeah, it's just it, it, that kind of deathly, quite technocratic sort of situation, and it's being talked up in in precisely those terms. You know, we've dispatched Boris Johnson, this kind of um, virus which got inside the body politic, and that had to be expelled, and now we can get back to normal. But I, the, even and even though it's quite clear that. The way things are going, yes, the Conservative Party has collapsed, but that's probably just going to deliver a Labour government against all odds, or at least it felt like that not too long ago. I think the conditions that created the sort of 2016, essentially, yeah. really haven't gone away. Mm. Um, and I think anyone just hoping that everything's going to get back to normal, as they would say, are just, it's a, it's a wing and a prayer, really, because, again, that, that sort of restive spirit, you might not see it in the UK at the moment. I think a lot of those voters who moved from Labour to the Conservatives, they haven't gone back. Yeah, A lot of them just probably won't vote at the next election. It's the sort of sense that you get from the polling and so on. But um, the fact that you're seeing, you look around the world and you see that it clearly hasn't gone away. Yeah, And I think it clearly hasn't gone away in the UK either. We're just in another kind of interregnum at the moment, I suppose. Freddie, um, let's talk a bit about America. And mm. Trump has obviously been the kind of, the the obvious figurehead for, for the sort of populist movement in the States. But he's lost a bit of his touch this year, or he's people are turning their backs on him. I think it's fair to say. I think so. I think in America and in and in Britain, uh, voters are being sort of um, quickly disabused of the notion that if they make it clear that they want things to happen through the ballot, they won't happen. So I think sort of people are giving up on Trump because obviously he's a ridiculous figure. Mm. Uh, Trumpism is in a very strange state. Uh, my personal view is I still think he'll win the nomination, but I'm increasing the minority there. Yeah. And I think that the Republican Party is, well, if you look at something like Ukraine, the Republican Party is hopelessly split. Uh, and they, you know, the establishment knows what it thinks. There's a very clear bipartisan 
agreement, but mm. Republican voters are not comfortable with it. Um, so I think the right is shattering in America just as it's shattering in Britain. I mean, it's been a terrible year for the Tory party. And Rakib, in, in Europe, there has been something of a kind of populist revival, particularly I'm thinking of Brothers of Italy in, in Italy and the, the rise of the Sweden Democrats. I mean, how do you account for, how do you account for that? And what do you think well, it means? Well, I think in Sweden, uh, there's very serious problems surrounding the social and economic uh, integration of newly arrived uh, migrants and refugees. And I think that has fed into uh, increasing levels of right-wing populist support. Um, I, I, I think in Italy there is that uh, that, that sort of right-of-centre Euroscepticism, which has existed in the country for for some time. But that, that that's also being mixed with economic protectionism. So you, you can see brothers of Italy adopting that kind of Eurosceptic culturally and economically protectionist agenda and it, it's, 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 it's worked for them very well uh, in an electoral sense. I, I'll just follow up on some of the points that Freddie um, made. I think that, that transatlantic conservatism, you could say, is going through a bit of a crisis. I think the Republicans would Republicans would really do well to just get away from Donald Trump as much as possible. Um, maybe back in the day he was an electoral asset, um, the, the recent uh, midterm results suggest otherwise. Uh, a lot has changed. While here in Britain, if truth be told, the Conservative Party, I, I don't really know what the, they've achieved in government over the last 12 years. And the, and the trust, the, the, the trust government was one of the most disastrous political experiments imaginable. Um, almost combining everything that Brexit wasn't about. Many pro-Brexit voters are quite protectionist uh, in their policy preferences. Uh, there was one point in the Trust government, I, I think the Prime Minister Trust was of the view that the, the best way to engineer economic growth was through industrial scale um, immigration, which I think pretty much goes against what the average pro-Brexit voter that would have voted for the Conservatives back in the 2019 general election would have believed in. So uh, you could say that in, in both Britain and the United States, there is a bit of a crisis of, in conservatism. But you can see in other parts of Europe, uh, right-wing populism, there there is somewhat of a re-emergence. Simon, I mean, what do you make of the, this kind of idea that, you know, are the, are the adults kind of putting a lid back on things? Um, what's your take, just briefly? I do have a sense that Sunak is much more comfortable in the company of people like uh, Trudeau and Macron mm. than uh, any prime minister of Britain has had for a very long time. He seems, without drifting into conspiracy theory stuff, he does seem much more comfortable with the whole World Economic Forum type agenda. I don't know how popular that's going to be with British voters or conservative voters when the time comes. But there is no doubt at all that they've taken a huge gamble, essentially, on the economy turning around in the next 12 months. And if it turns around, however, from a very low base, and we are experiencing real pain now of a kind that, you know, you have to go back to, uh, to days of four television channels to remember what it was like the last time there was this kind of uh, price escalation and, and, and strikes and a genuine kind of winter of discontent kind of mode. Um, in fact, three television channels. If they can come up from that base, if there is a bounce in 12 months' time, in time for the general election, insane though it might be, you just never know. They might get away with it uh, and people might feel, okay, uh, he has demonstrated that he needed to take some painful actions. You know, people have very short memories 
and um, and they might just turn around. But my suspicion is that the Tories have now had their uh, their Norman Lamont singing in the shower moment, and they're not going to recover from this. <laughs> and Tom, finally, I mean, it's worth thinking about that. You know, the sort of pushback doesn't necessarily have to come from within the political mm. system, and this has been a great year of all of these movements. Um, mm. Suddenly, some springing out of nowhere i'm thinking about the truckers or the various farmers in europe particularly mm-hmm. in holland even in sri lanka the kind of revolt against the organic movement there mm-hmm. you know people rejecting the kind of orthodoxies of the laptop class quite forcefully no i think that's exactly right i think when we talk about populism there is a tendency quite naturally to talk about the f- hopes of particular right-wing parties, populist parties, left populist parties, whatever, and that when they rise or fall, populism is alive or it's dead, you know. And yet what I think has been so striking is that in the kind of post-2016 period is that you just see it popping up everywhere. So you saw it in France, you know, Emmanuel Macron is voted in and suddenly everyone breathes a sigh of relief in 2017. You know, populism is vanquished Mm. because this centrist former banker is in charge. Almost instantly of the Gilets Jaunes protest that kind of springs up. Um, As you were saying, the truckers protest, you know, you take a a leader like Trudeau, if anyone sums up the kind of technocratic, illiberal, liberal sort of, you know, ongoing regime, it's him. And yet again, you see this incredible kind of affront to his authority, which he then has to crack down on very severely in order to try and maintain face. Um, and, you know, it's easy to forget that Brexit was a, existed almost entirely ab- outside of the main party political structure. You yeah. know, there was the only party in Parliament at the time that supported it was DUP. You know, this was a revolt from the bottom. And I think one thing that we've seen in, whether it's in Canada, or whether it's in Holland, or whether it's elsewhere across the the world is not only do you see new parties kind of rising and falling because there's always that search for that new outlet for people to take voters seriously been ignored for so long but often they'll take matters into their own hands if that outlet isn't available either and i think that's something that's has been genuinely inspiring amidst this year even while some pretty bad things have been going on in the world as well Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.